Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. God is still on the throne, and prayer changes things. Today, archaeologist Abigail Levitt will share her findings about Joshua's altar in the ancient mountain of Ebal. Friends, we are here for you. We have folks ready to pray with you, whether by phone or through our special email address. 1-800-652-1144 is the number to call with your prayer needs. Or you can use prayer at swrc.com. That's prayer at swrc.com. We truly believe that prayer changes things, and we are here for you. Now, let's go inside the studio and join Clayton Van Hus with today's special guest. I'm Clayton Van Hus with you today on Watchmen on the Wall. We are visiting with Abigail Levitt. She is an archaeologist. She is an author. Her book is The Elbernot Structures, Joshua's Altar. And that is an interesting title for an interesting book. Abigail, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, it's great to have you. And we have a lot of questions for you. So this book that you've written, we're going to get into that in a minute. But first, I'd like to know a little bit of background information about you. What I can say, by the way, is I know Abigail. I have worked with her. She is the assistant director at the DIG for Associates for Biblical Research at Tel Shiloh in Israel. That means she's, she's a boss. She knows what she's doing. She's been working in archaeology for a number of years. In fact, some questions. How long have you been doing archaeology? I think it's been about 15 years now that I've been traveling to Israel, um, usually once or twice a year to go on digs. And more recently, I moved there a couple years ago. Yeah, so you're living in Israel. Currently, mm-hmm. of course, we've got some issues with the war going on, and that has affected yeah. you, and you're in the States at the moment. But uh, why, yes. are, why are you living in Israel? What's, what's going on? So I'm working on my Ph.D. in Israel at Ariel University. So it's a four-year program, and I'm halfway through it. You are halfway through your program. So, so when this is done, you're going to have a Ph.D., and what are you mm-hmm. studying? Archaeology, uh, specifically the transition from the Late Bronze Age to the Early Iron Age in the central hill country of Israel. So it's looking at that transitional period between the Canaanite period and the Israelite period, putting it in biblical terms, basically. <laughs> And so that's really an interesting time for me. Yeah, that is fascinating. And it's one of the main battlegrounds that's going on right now, because we're talking about Joshua's conquest from that Mm -hmm. late bronze to the early iron, and you're talking about the time of the judges. Why is such a study necessary? Don't people just believe what the Bible says, that Israel came out of Egypt and came into the land of Canaan and started living there? Is it that simple? Well, you know, that's the most straightforward interpretation, but a lot of people have questioned that, partly because that's good science to question things and to look for for evidence. So in a way, that's actually good to be looking for evidence. But a lot of people are actually out to disprove the Bible. They think that it didn't happen that way. They think that the Bible was written a lot later, that the authors didn't have access to good historical sources. And so they think it's a made-up history. And so they've come up with a lot of different ideas about where the Israelites came from. 
were they Canaanites who kind of revolted and there's this grassroots movement where they kind of took over? Or did they come from across the Jordan? Maybe they were nomadic peoples who kind of moved in a little bit. You know, like, where did these Israelites come from? And, and of course, most of the people who are asking these questions are, are specifically wanting to reject the most straightforward answer that there's a history book called the Bible that uh, talks about this and tells us where they came from. Yeah, that is interesting. You hear people a lot of times saying, oh, if only we had an ancient source that told us, like, what happened. But mm-hmm. we do. Yeah. So, yep. so yeah, so let's, let's talk just a minute about that. Do you think that the Bible can be trusted on the historical stories that it tells? I think it can. I think that despite the push to, to disprove the Bible, I don't think that there's any conclusive evidence that it's wrong. And we may be missing pieces of evidence that support the Bible. After all, when we do archaeology, it's not a nice, a nice record of every single thing that ever happened. We're, we're going basically through ancient trash, picking up bits and pieces, trying to piece it together. And so even in instances where we don't have evidence for something that the Bible talks about, that certainly doesn't mean that it didn't happen. It just means that we haven't found that evidence or haven't found it yet. It may still be out there. Yeah, yeah, that is that is important to know that that absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. That's right. that's that phrase that they they drive into us. It is mm-hmm. interesting to to look at that material culture to to look at the remnants left behind. And that's that's what mm-hmm. archaeology is. Yeah. So, can you give us just a little understanding most people, I think, when we think of archaeology, we think of movies like Indiana Jones, Tomb Raider, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, how close is that to real archaeology? Well, let me just say that Indiana Jones was a really bad archaeologist. <laughs> um, he did the opposite of what you're supposed to do. He, uh, he went for the treasure and smashed up all the, the, uh, the structures and the, the actual stuff that archaeologists are looking for. So archaeology is pretty meticulous. You go to an ancient site, you start digging carefully, documenting everything. You lay out a grid so you know exactly where you're digging. You document where everything came from. And unfortunately, unlike Indiana Jones or the other movies like that, you don't find a lot of treasure. It's pretty rare. Um, Usually we find broken pieces of things that that the ancient people used in daily life, um, which is actually kind of cool. I like that, that, you know, you think about our daily lives, and, you know, we use dishes, we use this and that, you know, all, all of the things. And you find them in the ancient context, slightly different, sometimes very much the same. Some things, you know, they figured out what worked, and it's like we still use the exact same thing today. But you're finding these pieces of daily life that, that tell us these ancient peoples, they were like us. They cooked their foods, they, they used tools, they, they survived. And, and I think that gives us really a connection not only does it teach us about, about them and we can learn and understand, but, but it gives us a connection to those people in the past. Yeah, yeah, certainly. There's nothing like pulling something out of the ground that hasn't been seen by human eyes for 3,000 years. And right. um, especially in a place like Shiloh, where we dig, mm-hmm. and we know that there's a lot of biblical history there. So how important is it that the events that are recorded in the Bible that we see them as true events. Is this a sort of thing we can look at and say, well, the Bible teaches us good things, but we don't really need to 
to believe what it says about, say, history? You know, I think that the the truthfulness of God's Word is of utmost importance, because if we can't trust what what the biblical authors wrote about history, how can we trust what they wrote about God and about doctrine? I think you can't pick and choose what to accept as truth. If this is God's Word, then then it's true, because God is true. If we say that, oh, oh, it's got good doctrinal truths, it's a theological story, but it, it's got made-up history, I don't think that that works on a logical level. Either it's all true or, or it's not. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's a very good point. If the Bible is accurate in its reporting of human events, then you know, it must be accurate in what it's saying about God. So, yeah. okay, so digging at Shiloh, just let me ask you one more question about your, your mm-hmm. dig before we get into the book. You've been digging there since Associates for Biblical Research began digging mm-hmm. in that area. So you've been on every dig. You are the assistant dig director. So you're, mm-hmm. you're what, number three on the totem pole there? I think so, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> pretty big. All, all I know is you're my boss. So that's, that's important. <laughs> So what have you seen digging at Shiloh? Does it match up with what the Bible tells us? Yeah, um, it's actually really cool. It's, it's an amazing site to dig at because it's such a big part of biblical history. I mean, this was the, the capital of Israel, really, for 300-plus years, while the tabernacle is there and the high priests are there, and this is where everybody is coming for the feast several times a year. And so this is a really important site for biblical history. And it's just amazing to have the opportunity to dig there. And yeah, as we're digging, we're finding evidences of the Israelites being there very clearly. And But a cool thing is, is that when the Bible talks about Shiloh, that's actually just a small piece of Shiloh's history. And it's the part that's relevant for the biblical story, so that's what it talks about. But beyond that, there's other parts of Shiloh's history that aren't relevant to the Bible. And so we get to, to find those as well. We're digging through stratum both before and after the biblical period at Shiloh. And so we're seeing how those interact. You know, when the Israelites arrived with Joshua, Shiloh was already a city. There were Canaanites that had been living there before. And so, like, we're answering questions like, did the Israelites come in somehow and peacefully take over? Was there a battle? Did they conquer the site? You know, what, what was going on? And so we can actually expand what we know from the Bible and, and learn more details that weren't relevant to the biblical writers, but are, that are really interesting to us. Yeah, yeah, those are interesting things that you think you know the whole story, but no, the Bible tells what's, what's relevant to the, the message it's giving. And so mm-hmm. the things found, it's, it's just fascinating to look and to, to see that human beings lived there and just lived their lives. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's change gears. Let's talk about your book. Your book, The Elbernaut Structures, Joshua's Altar, with a question mark. So mm-hmm. there is a site. I think you can probably explain it better. Let me just, for, for our listeners there, it relates to Joshua chapter 8. And is mm-hmm. the story of Moses told the Israelites, when you go into the land, you're going to do this ceremony and build this altar. Can you tell us about those events, what happened there? Yeah, so, so this is something, like you said, that Moses had commanded, and the Israelites did it. They didn't always do what they were supposed to do, but in this instance, they did. 
And so they were to have this this ceremony on Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, which are facing each other, and in between in the valley is ancient Shechem. And so half of the Israelites stood on Mount Gerizim, half on Mount Ebal, and the ones on Mount Ebal pronounced curses. Basically, these are the things that we understand will happen to us, the bad things, if we disobey God. And then on Mount Gerizim, the other half of the people are saying blessings, and these are the good things that are going to happen to them if they obey God. And so this is a covenant ceremony. Basically, they've come into the promised land. They've crossed the Jordan. They've come into this land that's been promised to them. And this is, this is setting up their, their structure of authority. They're basically their government system with, with God being the one in control. And this is their, their covenant with God that they're going to obey him and they understand the consequences, both of obeying him, they get blessings, and disobeying him, they get curses. And as part of this, this whole event, Joshua builds an altar on Mount Ebal. Moses had told him to do this, he does it, and they offer sacrifices there, and this is part of this whole ceremony that's going on. Now, early explorers, when they came into the, to the land looking for biblical sites, they looked for Joshua's altar on Mount Ebal, but for a long time, they, nobody found it. So this was one of those, those mysteries where it's like, well, the Bible says Joshua built an altar there, but nobody ever found it. So is it really there? Is the Bible really true? What's going on here? Yeah, it's a very interesting site. And just to give like a picture for our listeners, the ancient city of Shechem, which is in the modern city of Nablus, and it's a wonderful place to visit, one of my absolute favorite places mm-hmm. in the land. But you've got this small city. Picture something maybe the size of a grocery store. And you've got these two mountains. You can kind of picture like a football stadium where if you put a, the city in one end of the stadium, the seating in that curve would be like the two mountains. It really is like that sort of a, a setting. And so this, they looked for this altar, but it wasn't found on those slopes. So, mm-hmm. so what is the story of its discovery? How was it discovered? So in the 1980s, Adam Zertal, he's an Israeli archaeologist, and he was not looking for Joshua's altar. He was doing a survey of that region, an archaeological survey. And it's, it's really fun. I've done this. You go out and you just go for a walk. You go for a hike. You hike over the valleys and the, the hills and, and you look for ancient archaeological sites. And so he was doing this. He was surveying Mount Ebal and he found a site on the backside of Mount Ebal. From this site, you can't actually see Mount Gerizim, but he found this site. He thought it looked interesting, and so he started excavating it. And when he dug there, what he found was a big rectangular structure that it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't like anything he'd seen before. It wasn't like a house or like a tower or, or any standard structure that we see in archaeology. It was unusual, and he found massive amounts of ash and bones, and these are bones of sacrificial animals. They're sheep and goats and cows. And oddly enough, he also found deer bones there, which is a whole other um, issue. But, but mostly what he's finding is sacrificial animals, but definitely all clean animals, according to the, the Jewish law. And so he knew that this was an ancient Israelite site. And then as he excavated, he excavated inside this, this structure, and he found a smaller round structure underneath it. So obviously the, the larger one had been built over the, the smaller one, expanding it, maybe even commemorating it. And so what he believed he had found was a, an altar site, both of them, probably a, an earlier round altar and then a, a later large rectangular altar. 
And he became convinced that this was Joshua's altar. And he had not even believed the biblical account for that time. And this site convinced that Joshua actually built an altar and, and that here it was. But this actually didn't go over very well in, among scholars. He was pretty much plagued with people disbelieving him, people trying to come up with other explanations. But, but really, I think all the evidence points to that, yes, this is an altar site. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any other explanation. Sure. And, and we've visited that site, and it's, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a very interesting structure. And so, so there's a, a smaller round structure with a mm-hmm. larger rectangular structure with a ramp built over top. Mm-hmm. And, and my understanding is correct. That round structure is kind of geometrically in the center of the big structure, correct? Right. So, yeah, it's clear that the larger structure was built right over top of it. It's not a coincidence that someone later on came and built, you know, something that just happened to be sort of in the same spot. Like, it's it's very clear that the larger structure is built exactly over top of it, replacing it, expanding it, continuing it. Yeah. And so then, at some point, somebody piled a whole big pile of rocks on top of the whole thing, right? Mm-hmm. So they why did. why would they do that? You know, it's an interesting thing. There's there's basically two ways that religious sites go out of of use generally. One is that they're destroyed. So we see that, like for example, uh, Josiah and Hezekiah, they did religious reforms and they destroyed pagan pagan altars, pagan high places. These these religious sites. So that's one way that they go out of use is they're destroyed. If this is something that is seen as a bad thing. The other way is, if this is a religious site that, that's good, it's acceptable according to the religion of the, of the region, but for some reason it's no longer necessary, it's typical to kind of to bury it. You cover it over with stones so that it's preserved, it's respected, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a burial, a burial shroud, basically putting, putting the site out of use because it's no longer needed but being respectful about it. And so this is something that's seen at altars and temples in the ancient Near East. And, and so I think this site follows that pattern to where this was an acceptable religious site. This, if it is indeed Joshua's altar, you know, this, this was something that God commissioned. But at the same time, it wasn't needed anymore. And so they buried it, covered it over with stones, and let it go out of use at that time. Okay, that is, that is fascinating. And we're going to leave today on that. I'm reminded by those stones of passages you read oftentimes in the Old Testament when your children will ask, what do these stones mean? And, you know, you have mm-hmm. the answer. So I think that's fascinating. Now, uh, mm-hmm. we, are, we are out of time for today's program. I do want to remind you we're talking with Abigail Levitt, who is an archaeologist working in Israel, and she is digging at Shiloh, but she has written a book on the altar on Mount Ebal. The Elbernot structure, Joshua's altar. Is this the altar of Joshua? And tomorrow we'll talk a little more about that. But I do want to tease something that there was an exceptional find there back in 2019. And Abigail, I believe you were on that team. So mm-hmm. we are going to talk a little bit about that tomorrow. It has been a pleasure talking to you today. You can go to swrc.com. To find out more about Abigail's book, which is amazing. And uh, we will talk to you tomorrow, Lord willing. Okay, thank you. We have much more from Abigail Levitt on Joshua's Altar coming up on our next program.
The book of Joshua records a ceremony of blessings and curses that the Israelites held on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim shortly after they arrived in the Promised Land. Abigail Levitt's book, Joshua's Altar, provides a thorough analysis of Joshua's altar by examining Mount Ebal and altars in the Bible and then by analyzing biblical references to Joshua's Mount Ebal altar to determine the exact biblical specifications for that altar. This fascinating book then discusses the surveys and archaeological work that have taken place on Mount Ebal, including examining the claim to have found Joshua's altar. Order Joshua's Altar today when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. You can also order on our website, swrc.com. Joshua's Altar by Archaeologist Abigail Levitt, 1-800-652-1144. Dr. Larry Spargimino comes to the microphone now with an important report on the school in Pakistan that many of you pray for and support. We are visiting with Pastor Victor Samuel, who is in Pakistan. He is on the phone with us. He is the pastor of Grace Bible Church, and he is also the administrator of Grace Charity School. We have a very, very urgent situation that has developed. We are hoping to raise $50,000 for the school. I don't think I've ever asked our audience for that amount, but the situation is critical, and I want to explain it to you. I know it is the beginning of the new year. We've just gone through the Christmas holidays. I know it's been very difficult for our listeners. It has been a very, very difficult year for us as well. We have really experienced a financial crisis. The teachers at the school normally receive their salary around the first of the month, but this past December, they did not get their salaries until almost the new year. Now, can you imagine not getting your paycheck and having to wait a month for it? Would you keep on working? Would you be faithful to your employer and be a faithful team member? Now, friends, these are very, very wonderful, very dedicated teachers. We don't want to lose them. Furthermore, the teachers did not get a full salary. We could not pay them a full salary. And also, the teachers at the smaller campus in Kamalia have not even been paid. And there is no way we can pay them as far as I I can see. To focus in, we have purchased property for a new building right adjacent to the school. The school has been growing, but construction has had to stop. We are out of funds. Now, here's one of the issues that's causing a big problem. The police see an unfinished and empty building as a problem. It could be broken into, it could be looted, it could be burned or destroyed, and then the police would have to come. They don't want to get into a problem with the community. So the police are asking that we finish the building and start using it, and they're putting pressure on Pastor Victor. I really pray for Pastor Victor's He's like he's in a vice. He's a great man of God, and he prays. He loves the kids. So, you know, they're saying over there, where's your God? Why isn't he helping? Why doesn't he do something? Doesn't he love these boys and girls? So we're asking for your prayerful consideration of the need of Grace Charity School. We have about 400 students who are doing very well. They're wonderful young people. That's a little bit of an introduction. Now, Pastor Victor, is there anything else that you might want to uh, add to what I've said? Uh, yeah, 
yes greetings everybody and uh, i want to wish you a merry christmas thank you so much for always supporting us fasli has already uh, mentioned almost everything the situation is truly uh, very difficult now it was always a difficult for us but right now we are experiencing so much pressure from the opposite people are really not good this construction was needs to be completed very soon because first we had the pressure from the the people the evil people who don't like us now we have pressure from the police law enforcement because they they think if we don't finish it soon it might disturb the communities or it can be burned or something you know i'm just so much concerned even the, after the christmas prayer service i got a call from them and they were asking me to to start construction work so that's why i I've, i've been emailing pastor larry and been telling him all the the stories what was happening and plus you know this campus will be really a blessing for the children who have been waiting to get an education to learn about the jesus and also the skillful life things are really and plus uh, i want you to please pray for us and especially for the regular sport to pay the teachers in both campuses thank you so much for that and uh, i want to let our listeners know that they can make a contribution by sending a check or through credit card if they would like more information 1-800-652-1144 you can send me an email i've been working with uh, pastor victor we established a church in 2009 and then a year or two later the school you can send me an email if you like more information larry at swrc.com pastor victor how how are the kids doing i know there was a little angry group out there the other day i think the security guard actually called the police and and so how are the children doing the boys and girls at first everybody got frightened and uh, they were scared but uh, you know after the police came and they encouraged us and they said that they will be looking at those people now of course you know even myself and the teachers the staff they were all scared and afraid you know we recently just had the christmas program there where children performed the christmas drama so we we were really very scared and we are but we are encouraged because we we are used to face these kind of things yes Yes, yes. Well, Pastor Victor, I must say I've been in ministry for more than 50 years. You are certainly a great man of God. I really mean that. I've I've been with a lot of missionaries, a lot of pastors. Uh, you love the Lord, you love the Bible, you preach the Bible, you preach the whole counsel of God. And I know many of you uh, are facing financial difficulties, but even you can't give a penny if you can pray. Just pray and ask God. to pour forth yes. the blessings of heaven. Thank you Pastor Victor. Thank you so much to Russell Larry. Abigail Levitt's book Joshua's Altar provides a thorough analysis of Joshua's altar by examining Mount Ebal and altars in the Bible. This fascinating book then discusses the surveys and archaeological work that have taken place on Mount Ebal. Order Joshua's Altar today when you call 1-800-652-1144. You can also order on our website, swrc.com. 
Tomorrow we continue our look at Joshua's altar with archaeologist Abigail Levitt. Be sure to tune in on your favorite radio station by downloading our SWRC mobile app or by subscribing to our daily Watchman on the Wall podcast. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com.